We are living in a divided world, divided by everything from race to gender to class and political party. But my guest today, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, has used her own experiences of being a black female pastor, being in an interracial relationship, and a survivor of childhood abuse as a way to teach us that we as humans all have the capacity for empathy and forgiveness in order to create a world that is truly driven by love. You're listening to We Need to Talk. So you Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. My guest today is an author, a preacher, and a woman that is truly walking in her purpose, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Melinda, I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you. Of course. You know, I, well, I was, it's an honor to chat with you, and I was introduced to your work by one of my closest and dearest friends that lives in New York. He's been attending your church for a while now, and when he wrote me and, and told me about you, he just talked about your openness and your heart and how you point, how you paint such a beautiful picture of a relationship with God. And he's a new Christian, so he just came into the faith in the last few years, so being exposed to your church has really opened his eyes to the side of progressive Christianity. And the more I've read about you and followed you on social media, I just grew this deep admiration for you, mostly because I align so much with your views and how you present yourself. And I just, Mm -hmm. I saw myself so much in all that you're doing. And it was really just an honor to be introduced to everything that you do. And one of the things that really resonated with me was how you present that there's more than one path to God. Yes. And I've always been a firm believer in that, but I really want to know just in your theological journey and your ministry journey, how did you come to that conclusion and how have you been trying to get others to see that as well? Oh, that's such a great, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing I would say is all of us are given a faith as children. Like we, you know, meaning Jewish parents, Muslim parents, Buddhist parents, Christian parents, progressive, conservative Christian parents, mm-hmm. agnostics, atheists, humanists, right? Um, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, you don't come out of the womb thinking, I wonder if I'm going to be Jewish. You know, that's what happens. So there's a way in which you get, I say, your parents give you a God to love or a faith to believe in. And then as we grow up, that faith that we're given by our parents stays with us or changes or morphs or People get converted to something late in life, or I say their God grows up as they grow up. Less um, God is mean and God is going to punish me if I'm bad and God's going to love me if I'm good kind of thing. Our faith gets more complex. Our faith gets more nuanced and we can get a new image of God. God is friend. God is power. God is love. You know, God is wisdom. Some of my friends call God they as a pronoun. I think that you go, that's work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for, for me, that happened, of course. My mom and dad were Christians from the South. They weren't Southern Baptists, but they were Christians from a Southern Baptist background whose main goal was that we did the Ten Commandments, <laughs> that we loved our neighbor as ourselves. And that was their mini Bible, if you will. Yeah. But as we got older, 
they got more, you know, bounded, right? You know, God doesn't want you to have sex. God doesn't want you to drink. God doesn't want, you know, all those things that children are wanting to do as they become teenagers. God helped my parents police us is what I would say. And I understand (laughs) that, you know, why not? Totally. But part of what happened in that me growing up and girl, I was a good girl. I was good. But me growing up and looking in the world differently, I I started wondering, well, is there only one way and one truth and one life? How does that work? Jesus is himself a Jew. How does that work? And it was just my curiosity that predated my journey into seminary that I just made friends and read stuff and studied stuff and got kind of convinced that God spoke more than one language. Hmm. And then I, I just want, I kind of set out to prove it, you know, like uh, I let go of the feeling that I, as a Christian black woman was the only one God was revealing themselves to. How small would that be? I just thought this God I'm in love with and I am in love with God wants the Chinese baby girl in an orphanage to know who God is. Are you kidding me? Once the Buddhist boy learning how to uh, meditate to know, once the is once the girl in a hijab in um, Palestine, you know, once the once the atheist at the ocean going, look at this ocean. I think God is winking and going, mm-hmm, that's me hmm. right there, like uh, Suge Avery in the color purple. Really, yeah. God wants yeah. to be loved. So this is my journey. And I I think it's not a solitary journey. I Lots of my friends are on this journey. Lots of my colleagues are on this journey. But my job as a clergy is to help people get with God called love. That's mm-hmm. my job. I used to think when I was a younger person, Melinda, that my job might have been to convert people to Christianity. I had that thought for about five days. And I was like, uh, no, that's, that's, that's just not, that's not I a big enough the, 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 the a, lifespan of that. Like about five, five days. days. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not really what it is. But just to really help people to find their path, the yeah, path, the path yeah. that'll take you to loving your neighbor as yourself, whatever yeah. that is, let's do that. And you know, it's interesting that you say that. And I joke, you joke about the five days, but I do think that a lot of Christians go into that faith thinking that that is what their job is and what their calling is. And what I've personally noticed, having been in the Christian space, having been in the evangelical Christian space, is that there seems to be a difficult time for some Christians to accept an inner faith existence. Yes. And they think that their way is the only way. Why do you think that is? And what do you think the messaging in the church is? sharing with them to make them think that oh that is that that is the that is it right there if you think about christianity like let's do our church history now but if you think about christianity literally being built on top of judaism and if you think about judaism anybody who's been to israel you can feel that judaism is literally built right on top of canaanite ancient you know stuff in other words and archaeologists would go, oh, here's some Christian pots and crosses. And if you kept digging, you'd find some, you know, menorahs and you'd find, a, you know, a Torah. 
And if you keep digging, you'll find remnants of other ancient cultures. We have borrowed each other's stories. We have synchronized our faith from other stories. The Romans have, you know, virgin birth, right? I mean, this is the truth. Yeah. And I think because Christians, before they were called Christians, the followers of Jesus were coming to identity against, um, not really against Judaism, but in the context of empire that made them against Judaism. Like that the way where pressure and um, trauma, like the gospel of John sounds anti-Semitic. And I think what it really is, is saying we are this, mm. we are this, mm -hmm. this is who we are. And that strong sense of identity against then feels against other folks. And maybe because Christianity comes to be in the context of Roman, in the context of Greek, in the context of Judaism, it's the only way. It's a unique story. Come be with us, it's a unique story. I think that's true. And I think mm -hmm. we need to get over it because we're <laughs> smart enough to know yeah. that what all I said, everybody knows yeah. uh, the Jewish rabbi calls us into this relationship. What, why are we so like holding on to our truth as the only truth? It stemmed from fear, I feel. I think that's right. It's fear of being wrong, fear of having everything that you've been told be completely different. And I think that that's why, you know, when we talk about deconstruction, which is a word mm -hmm. that I've recently, you know, become aware of, but I realized that I was actually doing that, but I didn't know that the, that was word the word for it. For it. Yeah. It's a scary path to go down because you're literally taking apart everything that you've been taught and everything that you were raised with and born with. And I get that that's scary, but I also think that people think when you go down that path, that means that you have a lack of faith. And I actually think it makes your faith stronger when you choose to ask questions. I agree with that. Uh, Fred Beekner is a Presbyterian minister that writes these books, um, wonderful books, like the Alphabet of Faith or something. He says, you know, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. You know, questions, I would say, are the juice that makes faith grow. Interrogating what we see um, what we've read, what we're told with a hermeneutic of curiosity through the lens of curiosity and not judging ourselves for the curiosity because we got here because of curiosity. Yeah. I mean, we got here because humans were curious about stars and moons and gravity and fire and fertility and fruit and harvests and what makes the stuff grow there's there's a reason why all of our holidays like track with time to pick things or yeah. <laughs> time to plant things and so it is a it is a beautiful profession to be in to have the job of uh curating curiosity theological curiosity in little kids what do you think god is like what how how do you see god to, to teach young adults to be exegetes of the text. Here's a good study Bible. Look up that word, find out what that means. How is that used? Oh, the word for mercy and womb 
is almost the same word. Hmm. You know, um, Shekinah glory. One of my one of my uh, uh, one of my members the other day gave that back to me. That the word Shekinah or Shekinah Shekinah glory relates to the word neighbor. God is a female neighbor. What? God is a female neighbor. Like just nuancing and coloring and shaping the holy, like you would a lover. Uh, I want to know more about you. I don't want to just look at your blue shirt. I want to know more about you. (laughs) (laughs) If we can have that kind of curiosity, we we can be free to really interrogate God and have more intimacy with God and have a richer relationship with God. And I think one of the main things that I noticed a lot of people have been questioning um, and and finding new answers for is how the church has approached the LGBTQ community. Right. And um, we know that the church still has a long way to go in terms of that reconciliation. But I do love that people are starting to question these verses and the clobber passages that are used as a weapon often and the ones that have caused so much harm. But I'm curious for you, where do you think the church, the church stands in terms of racial reconciliation? Because that's a conversation I don't think that we have enough. That's a great question. Like we're all, when you ask that question, it makes me think, well, what the church has done instead of digging into race is to focus on sex. Because that's, <laughs> I don't know what that is, salacious. I don't know what it is. It's like, don't have sex. Please don't have sex. Please don't have sex. If you have sex, please have it this way. <laughs> <laughs> the way the missionaries uh, taught you. Thank you so much. And yeah. you know, have it with one person unless you get divorced. But then don't get divorced. And also like this whole strategy about Let's decide to make abortion the litmus test, right? Mm. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, I've not had an abortion. I'm a pro-choice pastor. I'll be honest to say that. But the way all of that homosexuality and who's too feminine and the woman is menstruating mm. and therefore nasty and shouldn't serve, like all of that, right? Is the same stuff, Linda. Yeah. All designed to avoid some of the harder stuff like poverty. Mm-hmm and race. So I really believe in, um, I really believe in um, the church's calling to dismantle racism and to admit her collusion with racism. The dance between the, the, you know, Protestant predestination and white supremacy that leads to the Klan, the myths about Cain and Ham and how that makes people black and that's why they should be servants. Mm -hmm. The slave obey your masters kind of junk that, so I don't know why we don't talk about it more. I, I don't know why we, the church, don't address racism as the sin is it is yeah to not love your neighbor as yourself is a sin if the command is to love your neighbor as yourself to not love your neighbor is breaking the commandment that jesus said is the most important one love god with everything love neighbor as self the writer of first john says how can we say 
you love God when you hate your brother or your sister. Boom, mic drop. All of the things. Walk out of church and go lynch somebody. Walk out of church and go burn down a town. Walk out of church and chart and have prisoners really be incarcerated people working for pennies, making your economy run. Walk out of church and hunt black people with Mm -hmm. your trucks. No, this is not. They find a justification though. That's the problem. And that's, that's the problem with the Bible as a whole is that it's misinterpreted and used as a weapon. And so, yes, even back in slavery days, people used Bible verses to justify, like you talked about with Cain and Hammond, they use that as a reason to justify slavery. And I don't know how, and I try very hard, but I don't know how to get people out of that mindset. I think, yes, that is, that is the question. How to get people out of the mindset. You know, there was a, there was a slave Bible in which they took the Exodus story out. Yeah. Yeah. I did know that. I did know that. (laughs) Just not having it there. I think clergy have a lot of work to do, friend. What kinds of classes are we gonna teach? What kinds of book readings are we gonna sponsor? What kinds of relationships are we gonna build across race and ethnicity? How do we, can we have the courage, white clergy, if you're listening to us? Hi, my name is Jackie. My pronouns are she or hers. (laughs) And I'm an anti-racist because I'm a Christian. are you, mm. can you imagine that God wants a world in which black, brown, indigenous and Asian people are treated differently than white people? Does the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, does the God of Leah, Rachel and Hagar, does <laughs> the God of Yeshua, Ben Joseph, who was the black Afro-Semitic, Jewish baby born in Mm -hmm. Palestine. Does God like white people better than black? (laughs) And how do you, how can we understand our faith as a walk toward the reign of God on earth? We prayed every Sunday, right? We prayed every Sunday. Your kingdom come, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How do we justify a racist white nationalist world in the name of the brown palestinian rabbi we have work to do yes absolutely now i have a question for you because this is something that i have come up against often but as a woman in an interracial relationship Mm -hmm. have you ever had to explain how you're actively fighting against white supremacy while also being married to a white man. And I ask that because my husband is white as well. And his name is also John, which is very funny. Uh, oh, we have a support group. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Funny>. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever had to come up against that? And how do you explain that? Absolutely. I've had to come up against it, but not as often as one would think. I, I don't know if my, st- to be honest with you, um, Every now and then, every now and then, now maybe after this podcast more, but every now and then I'll get like a little stank post from somebody who'll be like, Queen, what you doing with a white man? Well, I'm very happy with him. (laughs) (laughs) This white man right here 
if we could clone him, we could like, so the story I like to tell when I come up against that is, you know, John is, John is, um, he is indeed white. He's a United Methodist minister. I'm Presbyterian. So I say we're in a mixed marriage um, <laughs> because, you know, those Methodists and those Presbyterians, uh, he's my colleague. We met doing work on cultural boundaries, met doing work on anti-racism, me working on my PhD dissertation on identity development and how do we become a race and how do we erase racism? That was my project. Mm -hmm. How do leaders lead in multiracial churches? And John, there was John, being a colleague, smelling good, having shiny shoes and good manners. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And being a feminist. And I we got to be friends and we fell in love with each other. So I'm not saying that in order to end racism in the world, we all need to marry outside of our race. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that part of ending racism in the world is to build relationships, period, across yes. cultures and race. And sometimes because you build one, you're going to fall in love with somebody. And that's what mm-hmm. the races don't want. That's why those mm. anti-miscegenation laws were on the books until Loving versus Virginia. They do not want us to you know, darken up the whiteness and unpurify the whiteness. But truly, um, the young adults I know, the children have relationships across race until somebody teaches them otherwise. So that I think mostly people really appreciate me and John and the world together, um, doing things together. And I love him. How about you? How's your John? He's amazing. He's the best. Yeah, no complaints. But yes, he he definitely is a walk through the walk through the room while I'm recording. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But just to follow up with that, because you are someone that is an example of growing a multi ethnic community, and I do think that the more you are exposed to different races, different cultures, different people, that that is a, a valuable and valid way to combat racism. But at the same time, as someone who is trying to make a difference, it can get a little cumbersome to hold all of that weight and the severity of those issues, uh, especially if you're passionate about it. So how do you keep yourself from going into a dark place when you are trying to combat racism and sexism and homophobia and all the isms that are out there in society? I just love that question. Um, I had a preview of that question. I was like, well, one to some days you just lose your mind. (laughs) You're human. You're human. It is. It is a lot. Uh, Today I was talking to one of my friends and um, we did a podcast together. It was a little sad uh, as we were talking about Amir Locke and Breonna Taylor and, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and just the hunting and shooting and killing and death dealing of black and brown bodies. It's just so heavy. It really, really is so heavy. And I let myself feel my feelings. I'm, I didn't used to. I was a girl who thought as a young woman that the best way to be in the world is to like my shiny superpower, outgoing self, la la la, everything's fine. And in fact, I think I'm a better leader because I'm more honest with myself about when it hurts mm. or when I'm angry or sad or disappointed. And I think that people join you and care for you when you show your real self. Um, The notes I get, the love notes I get, we had a fire a year ago at at our church and the love notes I get when people see me grieve or see me, um, you know, um, 
in a prophetic grief space about the racism yeah. in America. Humans vibrate with each other's feelings if we're if we're honest. And so I don't I don't shit on myself when I feel upset or sad or angry. And I do cry the tears and I do laugh so much like we did today. Mm. Like you let yourself feel the humor and you let yourself cry and you let yourself dance it out and you give yourself a glass of red wine as a reward, not a bottle, a glass uh, as a reward to just to like, just have some chocolate and some red wine and say, this is for me today. Go for mm. walks. It, it, the whole cycle of the thing friends is what we're called to. We work hard. We play hard. We throw a prophetic shoulder into the mess that is America. And then you stand back and say, it's my turn. I'm getting out of the river. I write that in the book, like just I'm in my book, Fierce Love. I'm tagging out, I'm out. It's, yeah. it's Melinda's turn. She's in. Okay. <laughs> I'm over here cheering you on. So we can get to the promised land together in, in one in one mental piece. Yeah. Well, speaking of your book, Fierce Love, that just came out, I love the title and the premise. And you talk a lot about the vision and empathy and compassion. And empathy is really one of the main things that I do my best to operate from. Yeah. And it's one of the tools that I often use, especially when I'm talking to people that I don't agree with. So for you, how have you effectively reached people across the aisle that mm-hmm. don't agree with you or even your place as being a Black? woman and ministry leading people and they may not even think that you should be in the position that you are how have you used empathy in your everyday to talk to people that don't agree with you yeah yeah it's a it's a it's the project it is our aim you know empathy really meaning kind of to feel with right to empathy Mm -hmm. to feel with and um i think that comes from curiosity there's a curiosity I try to curate about folks, maybe because I'm a psychologist, but I don't think you have to be to be that way. I'm really wondering, like, somebody wants to look under a hood and say, how was that built? I'm always curious about how someone's story got them here. Mm-hmm. And I think, Melinda, that curiosity about each other's stories can lead to empathy. You know, my dad um, <clears throat> is an 87-year-old Black man, and he grew up in Mississippi, and sometimes he's hard and, you know, it's been hard to be his kid. Nowadays, he's gentle and, you know, softer. But the way I got to a really super close relationship with dad is to be curious about both his shiny goodness and his cranky parts, you know, his superpowers and his um, foibles. I learned in my house how to be curious about my dad and my mom. Mm. What one to survive. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I'm not trying to get a spanking. What's happening right in here? Uh, right. But I think in a way, if we curate curiosity about each other's stories, we, we're doing the opposite of what Dr. King would call thingifying people, right? Like um, if you're just a white woman, if you're just Karen, or if you're, you know, just the, that woman in the hijab or that black girl with dreadlocks, uh, you and me, or that mm-hmm. man with his pants down, we can make a caricature of someone and read things into that. Same kid walking with his Doc Martens on his jeans down as, a, as an astronaut for all you know. Um, but we, we have short stories about each other that are caricatures as opposed to really curious about the formative story. So empathy to me comes from 
curating a curiosity about how someone got to be who they are, about their mm. story. And mm. their story has lessons for them and you about them. And sometimes in the story, we find the link, the thing that we have in common. We're all from the South. Or my mother too was died young or whatever those links are that we can find. But then it also gives us this kind of distance where one of my professors defined love as the non-possessive delight in the unique particularity of another, the non-possessive delight or the unconditional regard. So your story, oh, oh, that, oh, that, that's what's happening with you. Hmm. I don't have to judge that. I can just receive that. When people finish reading your book, what is the one thing that you hope they, they take away? And I'm sure there are many things. Yeah. I think the one thing would be, it all starts with you. Mm. There, mm. there is a kind of flurry and go get it and make it rain and let's fix it. And I, I'm that girl. Let's please fix the world. Please fix the world. But if we think it starts with us, meaning it starts with loving you. Wow. <laughs> Every day there's a little movement we can make toward that that doesn't feel like it's a forest, but it's a leaf on a tree. And to love us, to love the parts of us that we think are unlovable, to love the parts of us that are strange, help us to love the stranger, help us to love the other, help us to love the otherness of the other because we've learned to love it in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, Reverend Dr. Jackie, I am so inspired by you and I'm so appreciative of your time. I would love for you to share with my listeners where they can pick up your book, where they can follow you, and if they're in New York, when they can attend your services for oh, Middle that's Church. So kind. It's so good to talk with you. So nice to meet you. Yeah, nice, nice um, I, I am at Middle Collegiate Church, but it's Middle Church, middlechurch.org, as in not first, not last, but in the middle. And we are actually live for worship every Sunday at 1145. You can come in your pajamas. Just come to church. <laughs> and we'll be back in person in just a couple of weeks. We shut down like everybody else did. But at the website, middlechurch.org, you can find out when we're live again soon. A couple of weeks, we'll be back live again. Wonderful. I'm at JackieJLewis.com, but you can find me at Middle. My book, Fierce Love, A Bold Path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness <laughs> that can heal the world is everywhere you buy books. The little places, the indie places, and, and that big box store too. Yes, wherever you buy books, you can find it. And we'd love to be in conversation with you. So check us out at Rev Jackie Lewis, all the places. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated chatting with you. And to the listeners, thank you for your weekly support of We Need to Talk. Make sure you like, comment, share, review, and most importantly, subscribe. Thank you to Stephen James, our theme song writer and producer. And remember, everything begins with a conversation. We need to talk.